0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Starabin, and this is America and Beyond. My guest today is George Beebe, Director of Grand Strategy for the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a think tank based in Washington, D.C. George spent more than two decades in government as an intelligent analyst, diplomat, and policy advisor, including as Director of the CIA's Russia Analysis, Director of the CIA's Open Source Center, and is a staff advisor on Russia matters to Vice President Richard Cheney. He speaks Russian and German, and not least, he is the author of The Russia Trap, How our shadow war with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe, which was published by St. Martin's Press in 2019. Welcome to America and Beyond, George. I have read your book and I heartily recommend it to everyone for its sober and incisive analysis. Let's get right to a core concept in the book, this idea of a quote-unquote systems danger in the U.S.-Russia relationship. What do you mean by that and how does that inform your analysis?
1: well systems thinking is is basically the the idea that a a large number of factors combine to produce effects that are hard to anticipate that a lot of things in the world happen as a result of the dynamic interactions of of multiple different uh, factors Um, and so straight lining Uh, The uh, the future, um, looking at a particular trend and extrapolating that you know to to indicate that you know next week's going to look sort of like this week and next month will look sort of like this month, and you know trends that we see underway right now will continue is oftentimes a formula for getting surprised Um, and so what i uh, observed over the course of my career and of course i i began my work in government uh during the gorbachev period uh prior to the time when it was obvious that gorbachev was a committed reformer right we were trying to figure out in the u.s intelligence community who is this guy what's he up to is is he genuine in some of the things that yeah he's I'll bet. Um, and over the the course of the the next uh you know several decades a lot of surprises happened a lot of things that experts did not anticipate in fact materialized and and one of the lessons that i drew from that was a you know predicting the future is pretty hard to do but b i tried to ask myself why were we surprised by so many things and I uh, began to zero in on systems thinking on um, the, uh, the fact that a lot of these outcomes were the products of these um, causal loops in which things got reinforced and magnified and, and small changes uh, turned into large uh, uh, events. Um, and so I asked myself, well, if that's true, um, what should we be doing now to anticipate where, um, the U S Russian relationship might be going uh, Mm -hmm. down the road. And so I applied this systems thinking approach, uh, to the relationship between Russia and the United States, Russia and the West, and asked the question how can the various factors that are affecting this relationship combine to produce outcomes that are much different than what the present looks like mm-hmm. um, and and this uh, began
0: so was, just just to date this a little bit this be, so this began as a kind of analytical exercise or construct while you were doing your analysis for the you know inside the government for the CIA and others and and was there any um kind of pushback against that style of analysis or was that sort of a prevailing method
1: well um the book itself did not begin while I was in government but my approach uh analytically certainly did. yes that's that's what I mean yes and and uh was there pushback sure um why a because systems thinking is difficult you know none of us do this sort of thing naturally um it is counterintuitive uh and you know most of us um are uh prisoners of trend analysis right we we think that the the future is going to more or less look like the present um and most of the time that's true but
0: right
1: Right. not not well actually I
0: wanted I was going to bring this up a little bit later but it's it's fine to just to digress it because I think it's an important point confirmation bias uh which i take very seriously and i think of and we'll get to the the russia ukraine war and conflict and and so forth but t- to talk a little bit about the confirmation bias does how would how do you think of that and does that does the systems thinking in some way help to uh, mitigate the perils of confirmation bias and and, wh- and why don't we define it too what would do, do you agree with the validity of The idea of confirmation bias
1: oh absolutely um confirmation bias is the tendency that we all have to see what we expect to see Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's a it's a natural uh human inclination um but it is uh a big problem when it be when it comes to intelligence analysis uh you know, not just about anticipating the future which is one of the functions that intelligence uh, ought to be performing but also generally trying to distinguish fact from allegation and fact from falsehood and Um, And and also, uh, you know, another analytic function that's an important one is to be able to walk in the shoes to the degree that one can of one's adversaries and their perceptions and uh, their constraints, their goals. Uh, how they perceive you, um, th- those are hard things to do, but it's critical uh, for for good intelligence uh, analysis and, and good foreign affairs analysis more generally. And in your book, your book, I, I think you take pains
0: to sort of show how this can uh, afflict thinking about Russia in, in particular, which I think is an important issue. Is there some kind of confirmation bias that is especially prevalent with respect to let's just say Washington DC thinking about Russia, which has been our Moscow, which has been our adversary uh, in, in various forms, uh, some less inflamed than others for, for generations.
1: Oh, I think there's no question about that. Um, we have a confirmation bias problem toward, toward Russia uh, undoubtedly, but we have a, a, a confirmation bias problem more generally. Uh, It's not unique to Russia. Mm -hmm. I think confirmation bias is by far the biggest issue that our intelligence community suffers from and our our foreign affairs establishment more generally. Um, It is an enormous problem and it it takes a lot of uh, self-conscious discipline to try to overcome it. And there's not a lot of desire, unfortunately, in Washington Uh, to try to grapple with this problem.
0: How does it infect the Russia analysis in particular? Is it that we think that they're, I don't know, weaker than they really are or less capable than they really are? Is it that sort of thing? Or is that too simple a way of thinking about it?
1: Well, I think the biggest thing is that um, we tend to believe that the Russians will behave the way we will behave. Right. Right. You know, we extrapolate our, our own perceptions, uh, our own motivations and desires onto Russia. Um, and an example of this is uh, how we dealt with the massing of Russian troops near Ukraine's borders mm-hmm. uh, back in uh, um, 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, we approached this like um, a cost benefit calculation that um what was really going on here was that you know the russians were looking at ukraine like an ambition um like something that could uh expand the former you know russian empire uh, increased Russian influence in an important country to them and in so doing maximize their influence in the world maximize their economic benefits et etc cetera, etc cetera. and what we needed to do was deter Russian military action by showing Moscow that the costs of a military operation in Ukraine would greatly outweigh any potential benefits And if Mm -hmm. we were successful in doing that, then Putin's calculation would be, gee, this just isn't worth it, Um, and deterrence would take place. And I think that was a fundamental misperception of what was going on uh, in Russia. Mm. And in fact, um, exacerbated uh, an escalatory dynamic that had been underway for quite some time um and made the problem worse not better Uh, and and to get out of that situation we had to try to put ourselves in the shoes of Putin and Kremlin officials and try to understand their perceptions their their beliefs about what was motivating us um the threats that they perceived uh to Russia um and had we done so i think that would logically have led to a different us approach to try to head off this uh crisis which was clearly mm-hmm. growing at the time mm-hmm. and we-, we recognized that this was a serious problem certainly i mean the white house was getting uh reports from the intelligence community about uh, russian preparations and was increasingly saying this looks serious um and so it wasn't as if we were fooled about what might be coming but I think confirmation bias and an inability to put ourselves in in the shoes of the Russians um led to a set of prescriptions for what we ought to do that that were fundamentally uh misplaced now we we did this in World War II uh with the Japanese Dean Atchison wrote about this in uh in his uh, memoirs of this period, present at the creation, where he said, you know, the whole US government um, misread how Japan was uh, re- going to respond to the American embargo uh, uh, prior to the Pearl Harbor attack. Yeah. Um, we thought that Japanese expansion uh, in Asia was an ambition. Uh, but in fact, the Japanese leadership thought that this was an existential imperative, that they simply could not survive in a situation where they were potentially surrounded by the United States, Soviet Union, and the potentially yeah. China. And so their reaction to this where we attempted to impose costs right. on the expansion was in fact to to attack Pearl Harbor <laughs> because they felt that their their uh, existence was in fact at stake and I think that's not a bad analogy for how the Russians have perceived things in the it, it, yeah well I remember
0: reading it was years ago I can't quite remember the title but a book about Japan and, and Pearl Harbor and what Roosevelt was doing dealing with called uh something like signals and noise and how the essential problem we had was distinguishing, picking out the signals from the noise, because there's always so much noise. Uh, I want to relate this though, to even to widen the lens on the Russia, because in your introduction, you talk a bit about this issue of NATO expansion uh, and you quote, uh, George Kennan the father of America's cold war containment strategy on the likely consequences of NATO expansion and this goes back to several decades into the 1990s George Kennan is of course is no longer with us there's going to be a bad reaction from Russia and then the NATO expanders will always say <clears throat> will say that we always told you that this is how the Russians are but that is just wrong Russia is not he said a country dying to attack western Europe and one of my thoughts about Kennan is that he largely seemed to avoid confirmation bias. And one reason I think is that he identified, some might say even over identified, with a certain spirit in Russia which he saw as integral to Russia uh i think i even read he had some quote about how his his soul somehow got misplaced or or lodged in in Russia which i found you know having lived in Russia for several years myself uh, i i can sort of see that to some degree but did Ken is Kennan almost unique uh then among the the russian analysts in being able to have this quality of sort of necessary empathy that would allow him to discern how an adversary might react
1: well Kenan certainly stands out as someone that was unusually capable of doing that he's he's not unique there mm-hmm. are others certainly that can um, but there's a tension uh in this because um there's a danger as, as you alluded to in in uh, potentially going native uh, as uh, people in the foreign service office uh some sometimes uh, say that you can understand uh the uh the perceptions and cultures and and uh objectives of the country that you're living in to such a degree that you're not just empathizing but you're sympathizing mm-hmm. uh, and I, I would shorthand the difference being you know, this is how they see things, that's empathy. This is how they see things, and they're right. <laughs> <is sympathy. laughs> yeah. and, and that's uh, uh, something that um, any any good intelligence analyst or foreign affairs practitioner has to be cognizant of were you posted all,
0: uh, uh were you posted in in russia at any point was
1: uh, certainly not as long as kenan was but yes uh i i have been posted there lived what, there what years uh, back in the uh the 1990s okay uh, quite a turbulent time uh, right. in russia um but so the the challenge is to to understand uh without necessarily uh sympathizing or or taking sides um and and that is a challenge analytically now what the foreign service in the united states has done uh, in part to guard against going native is to emphasize the development of generalists as opposed to specialists in kennan's time uh, the state department was trying to create specialists they developed George Kennan, they they sponsored years and years of language immersion and study and and, uh, you know, an understanding of history Mm -hmm. um, that enabled Kennan to to become deeply expert in in Russian history and culture and language and to be able to develop this empathy. That is increasingly rare. Um, The U.S. government is looking more for generalists who are versatile. You know, I can serve in Japan this year and move to Brazil the year after as as uh, events might uh, require. Mm -hmm. You're rewarded in the Foreign Service for that kind of versatility. Um, Those people that want to develop deep expertise, peace in a particular part of the world uh, unfortunately um have to make some sacrifices in their own professional uh advancement right within within the government and I think that is something that uh the US government needs to be thinking about because um we do need both generalists and specialists. We need people with that kind of deep expertise that can develop that analytic empathy, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, don't cross over into sympathy,
0: right? Well, and sometimes people with with your kind of training and background feel, uh, usually once they leave the government, impelled to write a book that that kind of lays out their perspective. And I felt a sense of urgency in uh, your voice and in, in in picking up and and uh, immersing myself in your book. It. I mean, I think the subtitle certainly speaks to that: how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe. And again, the book was published in 2019, and I'm imagining you're probably writing uh, the year earlier than that, before that, or even the year before 2017. But whenever, so what was feeding that you know that itch or whatever it was that impelled you to write the book at that
1: time? Well, um, what was interesting is that I didn't set out to write a book. OK, I was was approached by the publisher, by an editor Mm -hmm. uh, was asked if I would be willing to write on what uh, he called the Gray War that was going on or hybrid war. And at the time, um, uh, an article written by uh, the Russian uh, chief of the general staff, uh, Gerasimov, Mm getting a lot of attention where he was talking yeah. about hybrid war Hybrid war, sure and so he said you know look write about this Russian concept of hybrid war and where this might go and and I said well thank you I'm flattered that you're asking but um uh, no I don't think I I I should okay and he said why not and I said well I don't think I'd write the book that uh, I think you're asking for and he said, "Well, what what book would you write?" And I made the mistake of telling him. <laughs>
0: uh, no, come on! There must be there's, I know what it's like to write a book, and there's, uh, it's not a small thing to 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 well, get no, into. It, it,
1: it isn't. But uh, what 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 I what I did was I I sent him uh, a few pages of copy and you know what I would write, mm-hmm. which in fact turned out to be the introduction to the book. Okay. Um, and I, I said, look, I would warn about where this thing is going. And here's why. Um, and uh, I, I did have a sense of urgency there because I was in fact, quite alarmed about what I saw developing and, and uh, what might be coming down the road. And I was hoping, metaphorically, to sort of grab readers by the lapels and say, we have a problem brewing. And, you know, the longer this goes on, the more difficult it is going to be to prevent it from turning right into a crisis.
0: Well, elaborate on that with respect to the nuclear catastrophe. I mean, is that Metaphorical, or is it something it felt like from the book more than that? I mean, you lay out some pretty, you know, I mean, there's scenarios, there are things that, you know, are speculative, uh, take place in the future, but they involve nuclear weapons uh, right. being used. So, so that, that.
1: Well, that's just- that's not a theoretical problem um w- w- in fact the the situation with Russia obviously has gotten much worse since the time I wrote the book and the the dangers of a nuclear confrontation with Russia have grown uh well beyond the what they were five years ago uh, and uh ironically I, well, let,
0: I, I should stop you there though because I mean we can we can get into that more but yeah I think a lot of of uh, 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 listeners are going to be interested in your answer to this. What, how have they grown since then? And, and what? I mean, what was your baseline, let's say, before the war on the possible use of nuclear weapons? And do and do you mean by by both sides or or mostly by Moscow? And how have they grown since? And what is the chief danger as you see it? Uh, we're talking now with the war seemingly at, if not like a stalemate, at least something that doesn't have an easily foreseeable end in, in sight, and we'll be approaching the second anniversary in February of next next year. I mean, that's where we are now. The Ukrainian counteroffensive has begun. It's been underway for some time. We haven't seen, at least to my knowledge, any in, much increased t- talk about from Moscow about nuclear weapons, but perhaps I'm missing something
1: right. well, the the fundamental argument then was that we had um, a increasingly contentious and conflictual relationship with Russia that that I labeled a shadow war mm-hmm. that was being played out between intelligence agencies, between special operations forces, between cyber warriors, uh, you know on the internet. Large, all of this was largely outside of the public view, but um, set a baseline for escalation into kinetic, as the military calls it, um, confrontation between Russia and the United States. Now layered on top of that was um, deepening perceptions uh, in both Russia and the United States, that the other side was out to destroy it. Russia increasingly came to believe that the United States was trying to surround Russia with uh, hostile uh, US military allies, uh, foment uh, some sort of insurrection or instability inside Russia itself that would lead to either Russia falling out of the ranks of the world's great powers altogether and the Russians believe that under that scenario, they would not be able to hold the Russian Federation together, or you know, create chaos inside Russia uh, directly in some way. And the United States increasingly came to believe that the Russians were out to, as as we uh, call it, uh, destroy the, the rules-based international order. Um, and in so doing, pose, a dire threat to stability and democracy inside the United States in some way. So the stakes as both sides came to to see them were existential um, and trust levels between the two uh, governments um, and communications between them were reaching, you know, alarmingly low levels. Now, on top of that, The mechanisms that the United States and Soviet Union um, had created during the Cold War and and extended in the early years of the post Cold War period were all deteriorating or failing uh, going away so. Uh, The stakes were going up, the the uh, numbers of direct confrontations between the U.S. and Russia were going up um, and the breaks that would serve to mitigate the dangers of escalation were all disappearing. That was the basic picture that I was creating in the book. And all of those situations have worsened since then. Mm -hmm. The shadow war has escalated into a, a proxy war in which the United States is all but directly involved in fighting the Russian military in Ukraine. Um, The degrees of trust and the perceptions of existential danger on both sides have only escalated um, significantly since that period. And the mechanisms that we have for um, trying to, to prevent escalation into a direct conflict have suffered even more. Uh, arms control has broken down altogether uh, with with Russia right now. We have almost no uh, diplomatic communications with the Russians; just you know, very sporadic. Trust levels have fallen even further, um, and uh, the war in Ukraine is only an accident or two away from some sort of direct confrontation we've already had a number of near misses yeah the the, uh, intelligence leaks um from uh, several months ago revealed was that uh a, a Russian air defense mistakenly fired on British aircraft thinking it had been authorized to fire wh- which in fact it had not been and they did fire on the aircraft but the uh the missile malfunction didn't hit its target but you know we right quite literally dodged a bullet there. yeah so-
0: and th- those are alarming and um let me actually uh, just kind of a, a little bit I want to get back to the n- the nuclear scenario but one thing you said uh i think drew attention to be about the communication levels is that uh or lack of communication isn't is that to some degree also on the biden uh administration i mean as uh, henry kissinger has often said something like you know if you're not going to talk to your adversaries who are you going to talk to i mean it's pretty easy to talk to your allies uh Sergei lavrov the the defense the foreign minister in russia is a, is a whatever else can be said about him he's he's a sort of professional of this institution of the moscow uh foreign policy establishment he seems at times to be talking to practically everyone whether it's in north korea or any other country uh Are we uh, in the Biden administration, is our secretary of state, Tony Blinken or others not um, kind of letting perhaps the ball uh, fall a little bit here in terms of the kind of communications that might be willing, uh, people might be willing to have? Or is that just directly on, you know, President Biden himself, who is, you know, kind of in his own way, a sort of creature of the American foreign policy establishment, too, with all of his decades as a senator? heavily involved in foreign policy
1: well I think part of this is that uh we have not been pursuing communications with Russia as aggressively as we ought to be mm-hmm. through very diplomatic channels that is part of it um part of it is that there's a little bit of a mismatch between the Russian and American uh systems when it comes to in, engaging um Russia obviously is a heavily uh Putin centric system it's, it's uh president heavy um and the interagency process in Russia works from the top down decisions right. get made at the top and sent down communicated to lower levels of government where they are implemented right. in the United States often vertical of
0: power right the right. Verti- vertical right. of last.
1: Mm-hmm. right So if you want to influence decisions, you you have to be concentrating on communicating with the Kremlin. Um, In the United States, uh, the uh, the interagency process usually starts at um, the uh, um, the agency level where experts get together across the various foreign affairs agencies And, you know, they are tasked with addressing problems, but they come up with position papers that get worked out at the working levels. They rise up through the system to the senior principals, ultimately to the president when necessary, where they're decided. Um, But uh, only after going through that process of interagency coordination most of the time so you know to influence the us system you know you do have to be engaging uh at you know the assistant secretary levels for example um but um we're not used to a situation where you know the president has to be uh the focus of affecting the russian system and communicating over there mm-hmm. Um, but we and- did, did, didn't we, in the past? I mean, whether it was
0: Nixon or or FDR, we did have presidents who would pick up the phone. Now, I wonder about this, because I don't live in Washington, I live in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, but I noticed that our CIA director, William Burns, who who is probably our most experienced Russia hand at a, at a top level, at times has made some interesting kind of reach outs, which obviously must have been authorized at the highest level to Moscow, but it's hard for me to resist the conclusion that Joe Biden is not you know he's not looking right now to just to sort of pick up the phone and call Vladimir Putin as he could
1: right we agree he could do that he could in principle the problem though is that uh in in our public discourse Putin has been painted as the equivalent of Hitler Mm -hmm. Um, something like Hitler and Stalin combined and it has become almost anathema to actually engage with him. So for the U.S. president to be engaging with his counterpart in Moscow um, is a very difficult thing to do politically right now, which is part of the problem that we're in. Uh, we have to be communicating with the Russians. We have to be managing this crisis so that it does not escalate. But the process of trying to manage it has actually become politically perilous inside Washington. Um, that's a dangerous situation, and we we need to think hard about how we find a way to navigate uh, through through this situation. But mm-hmm. it's not an easy one.
0: So do you, you don't you think it, it a bit more as a, a kind of a political predicament as you've described, as opposed to anything and I guess of more of an ideological character? I mean, some people might make a distinction between so-called r- r- realists. Which might include people such as yourself and 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 the Quincy Institute as as well, and people like Henry Kissinger and and others, uh, v- versus uh, what Kissinger would call the Wilsonians. You know, those who have had a kind of missionary idea of America's role in the world, usually attached to this notion of of spreading <clears throat> democracy, sometimes if necessary by the point of a gun. Uh, the neoconservatives are operating in a kind of Wilsonian tradition, and they're thinking about uh, the Iraq war under George W. Bush. There's always been a kind of liberal war hawk uh, sort of variation of that tradition. And it's possible that 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 kind of thinking uh, is operating uh, at the level of the Biden administration in the top, particularly the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, who was recently in Kiev. He is often, he seems to be identified with that, as well as uh, Victoria Nuland, who's at the State Department, too. And perhaps this is a bit in the weeds, but you know what I have heard is that the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, is perhaps more of a pragmatic mind on this I don't really know but it's it 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 seems to be there could be that kind of thinking uh at the top levels
1: yeah I've heard many of the same things that you're articulating um I I don't know for sure that that's true but uh certainly there is that perception here in Washington and I do think that this uh notion that our problems with Russia really are a function of the nature of Russia's internal system of of Putin and Putinism. And until that changes, we can't actually manage the situation with Russia. And um, in in this situation, we simply have to stick to this uh, course until Russia fails, either on the battlefield or internally inside Russia or both. Um, and I, I do think that that is also a misperception of what's uh, going on.
0: Well, that's important to say that, yeah. then, because, the, Putin, you know, right now he's I mean, we'll talk about it, he survived the so-called Pogosian mutiny, and there's no particular evidence or reason to think that he's going anywhere anytime soon.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. And you know, people of this persuasion tend to think that history is on our side, that ultimately the forces of freedom uh, and democracy will prevail. Mm-hmm. The arc of history bends toward progress. Right. That's True in Russia. Wilsonian. Uh, yep. And some some successor to Putin is likely to be more liberal and, and easier to deal with for the United States. So and we need to stick to this and wait it out um I don't think the nature of our problem with Russia is in fact ideological Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't believe that the Russians oppose democracy per se I don't believe they are trying to spread authoritarianism throughout the world Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that the the fundamental drivers of their uh, behavior uh, in the world and in Ukraine are rooted in their peculiar perceptions of their own security and role in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do believe that the United States has used democratization programs as a cat's paw to try to expand its own power and influence in Europe color in revolutions so- mm-hmm. that's right and that th- they have conflated as a result NATO expansionism and uh, what they perceive as aggressive uh american intentions toward russia with our efforts to promote democratization in this R- part of the world. right well let me and just part ask of, Part, it, part of it is their misperceptions part of it is our own failures in allowing those two things to be conflated right well in my mind
0: you have played an important role i think quincy has played an important role in articulating this kind of a viewpoint i'm very much of a mind that many flowers should bloom in any kind of an intellectual or policy or or think tank environment but is it difficult given the political uh situation that when you articulate you know a sort of a realist viewpoint on that when you point out that you know putinism is not necessarily uh the barrier to talk is that something that redounds back on you and back on on on, on Quincy is the environment in washington that nasty or is there an opening uh is there space to make this kind of uh view known as i think it should be
1: well there is not a lot of political space to make these arguments you're, you're correct um uh, we are trying to expand the space in which to advance these arguments and i think we are making some progress over time um and, and part of that is you know the way this war has been framed in a narrative sense since since the very beginning Um, the uh, the main arguments in our, our American popular discourse have been that this war has nothing to do with NATO expansion nothing to do with Russian threat perceptions this is entirely a war of Imperial aggression aggrandizement trying to expand the Russian Empire Um, and that if we don't stop Russia it will simply continue and that efforts to try to engage with Russia diplomatically will be perceived as as appeasement will be taken advantage of will make the problem worse Um, I do write about this in the book in in that very first. yes yeah
0: and you're not satisfied Uh, with that that uh, bifurcated kind of analysis because I'd like to point out that in the book you know John Mearsheimer is is a uh, almost a virally influential uh, exponent of the view that it's really all comes down to NATO expansion. And that's, uh, I don't think I'm overstating his his viewpoint. And that is essentially the root cause of everything, um, which I find reductive and pays insufficient attention to internal dynamics uh, inside of Russia and Russian history, which in particular, once, you know, the official imperial lexicon for Ukraine was Malarossiya, Little little Russia. So there's a lot Mm -hmm. going on there. But more importantly, you as the analyst in your book, take that on a bit as well. And perhaps that's part of the problem that the analysis becomes polarized as well, just it's almost a mirror of the polarization we see in so much discourse uh, in political America.
1: No, that's exactly right. Um, I, I do think, although I am sympathetic to aspects of John Mearsheimer's argument, I do think that NATO expansion has been a significant factor, one that has been underplayed in, in popular discourse. Nonetheless, I do think it is reductive to say that this this uh, invasion was entirely attributable to that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there there is more complexity to it, as I try to point out in the book. Yeah, there are both offensive and defensive aspects to Russian behavior and all of this, which makes it difficult to understand. Uh, and also presents a real challenge to U.S. policymakers because it, it requires a balance on our part between firmness and resolve on the one hand and flexibility and compromise and diplomatic engagement on the other hand, Uh, not an easy balance to strike, um, but essential, I think, to solving this problem. Um, If we're simply going to roll over and say to the Russians, yeah, whatever you want, you know, we understand your perspectives. We sympathize with it. That's in many ways Mm going to make the problem even worse. So, um, you know, the the notion that we could stop this war tomorrow by simply cutting off the Ukrainian aid and saying, "Okay, you're going to make a deal with the Russians uh, is uh, quite naive. Right. Um, the Russians would have no incentive whatsoever to negotiate or compromise in a situation like that. Um, you're you're taking the cards that you have in your hand, and uh, abandoning them all, and you're you're left with nothing at that point, and that would be catastrophic for Ukraine certainly right so, and that overall for the balance in the world and we do need to be aiming toward a balance in the world we're not going to defeat the Russians we're not going to eliminate them this is a problem that we're we're not going to solve we have to manage it uh, over the long term so uh and addressing it, Ukraine's legitimate defense needs has got to be an important part of this right Well, and if we miss management to
0: sort of, let's go back now to the thread that we began on the nuclear catastrophe. So, well, I can see sort of three possibilities here that perhaps could ratchet up the nuclear possibility. One would be these attacks that we're seeing from Ukraine on the Russian homeland, which could intensify, which I think are intensifying. And it may not even be only a matter of, of drones because we're reading that they're, they, the Ukrainians are developing longer range missiles on their own, so forth, not to use any that we give them. And so, you know, if Moscow were hit in some important way, I think that would get a lot of people's uh, attention at the Kremlin. Uh, a second would be if the if there's a, bro- a breakthrough in the counteroffensive and they actually manage to pierce uh, the land bridge that Russia has established that connects uh, mainland Russia to the Crimean Peninsula and is a vitally important uh, sort of roadway for the military and infrastructure and of course is where so many Russian troops are based, if that were truly Pierced, if there was a physical uh breach that Ukraine was able to maintain, you could see how the Russians would be extremely concerned about that. And a third would be if there were uh, related to that, if there were actual uh the intensification of attacks on, on Crimea, which I think um is not an issue that is well laid out um, in in the Western press generally. Crimea like like Kiev being a place that Russia and Putin regards as as sort of part of mother Russia it's where you know to go way back where you know Vladimir had his uh uh I think his baptism uh in in uh, Crimea and and Putin has spoken to that and i there are a lot of russians uh in Crimea itself so, and the and the Black Sea uh, naval port uh, of Russia in, in Crimea is fundamental to them as well. So I can see three ways in which Russia could feel much more threatened uh, depending on how things go. Those are the three. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I don't disagree with any of that. But what's interesting to me about your analysis is you've focused only on scenarios in which Russia might decide to use uh, nuclear weapons. Um proactively more or less yes Um, and well under under
0: under great uh, a feeling of of, 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 of
1: of crisis yes yes um but what you have not done is address scenarios in which the United States might use them which is quite interesting because the assumption appears to be here in Washington uh that well the the only way that we could find ourselves in some sort of nuclear conflict would be if the Russians choose to do so And of course that would be irrational for the russians to choose to do so because ultimately it could end up with the destruction of russia as well as the destruction of the united states you know no rational actor would want to do that and so, you know, the chances of that happening are actually quite small, and they they further bolster this argument by saying, look at all the instances in which the Russians seem to have drawn red lines that we have subsequently crossed, and the Russians have not escalated, at least not into direct attacks on the United States and NATO. They don't want to get into a direct conflict with us, so our margin for error is actually quite substantial. Yeah. We Yeah overly fearful of this prospect is yes i i I hear that that argument is (laughs) seems quite uh vocal and resonant that's right now what what this argument ignores is the way we could get into an escalatory spiral which i would argue we're already in just at a lower level on on the escalation ladder with russia that could cause one side or the other including the united states to face a choice that John Kennedy warned about in his American University speech after the cuban Missile crisis, which is a choice between humiliation and using nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Now, you've you've indicated a couple of instances where the Russians might face that choice, Mm -hmm. but I would argue that I can envision situations where the United States might face that choice. I'll just play this out.
0: Yeah, please. The
1: the Russians right now have been in a defensive effort to thwart the Ukrainian counteroffensive, And they've done this pretty effectively so far. Um, they have built rather formidable uh, multi-echelon lines of defensive fortifications. Um, they're designed to prevent a, a rapid Ukrainian breakthrough, an ability to turn this into a war of maneuver where uh, Ukraine breaks through Russian lines. They're able to outflank the Russians, cut off their supplies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, much like Nazi Germany, through its blitzkrieg operations in, in World War II, was able to do that in, in, in several uh, parts of that war um and and the Russians have done a very good job so far uh, although the Ukrainians have made some rather slow painstaking advances through these multiple echelons um by no means would anyone call this a successful you know break lightning kind of breakthrough um this is really become a war of attrition
0: yeah it's a grind
1: that, that plays to Russia's advantage you know the war of in, in Wars of attrition Countries with bigger uh, populations, uh, greater military manufacturing capabilities, uh, more land uh, to to deal with, have the advantage. Mm -hmm. Ukraine is fighting this war on its own territory, that by itself is a disadvantage their population is somewhere between you know five and seven times less than that of Russia that has real implications for force generation capabilities um and they have nowhere near the uh, military manufacturing uh capabilities that Russia does
0: now but how does that um, get us to then the United to, to, to Washington feeling you know well, into the, the nuclear but Let, yeah it,
1: it, let's just say that the Ukrainians exhaust themselves in this counteroffensive. okay they continue to try to advance through these defenses and in so doing they use up their limited supplies of of capable uh troops mm-hmm. um, and um they have fewer and fewer uh trained forces uh with which to fight this war They've lost a lot of equipment you know let's let's imagine that much of the armor uh, and uh, air defense capability that the uh, the West has supplied to Ukraine has been used up Um, and the United States doesn't have a lot of capacity to send replacements what what's happening over time is the u.s has churned through its stockpiles of artillery shells and air defense missiles and anti-tank missiles Um, and our military industry is not what it was in world war ii or or during the cold war we can't manufacture the volumes um, of uh, of ammunition that are being used up on a daily basis in this war Um, So we've been turning to South Korea and Pakistan and others to try to make up this difference. Um, But this is an advantage to Russia over time. So let's say the Ukrainians uh, exhaust themselves in this counteroffensive and the Russians counterattack. They see just like what happened in World War II with the Red Army facing Nazi Germany the the germans exhausted themselves in their efforts to advance in, into the soviet union and the soviet union was able to uh counter against a much weakened nazi army and broke through um and they didn't stop until they were in berlin now i'm not saying that i'm predicting this sort of thing but it is far from unimaginable that the russians could um break through against the ukrainians if the ukrainians have really weakened themselves in all of this what does the united states then do do we look at the situation and say oh well you know we gave it our best shot we we gave gave the ukrainians everything we right. could that's the way things go mm-hmm. um the way we've defined this war in, in our public rhetoric um has really boxed us into a policy corner here um, you know, we've, we've made the stakes in this war so great, we have very little room for simply sitting back and saying, okay, well, you know, the Ukrainians fought well and bravely and this is a moral victory on their part. Um, we could face a situation where we either um, escalate into some sort of direct involvement um, by NATO or the United States or both. or we could see the Russians really uh, breaking through against Ukraine and threatening uh, Ukraine in a very fundamental right. way.
0: Right, but that, but before we get to the nuclear prospect, would in terms of directly uh, assisting Ukraine, would that not more likely involve, let's say, uh, NATO pilots uh, providing air cover for the Ukraine, which has been conspic- be. conspicuously yeah. right. lacking.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I think the most likely steps would be air intervention in some way, either using Western pilots uh, to fly missions, using remotely piloted vehicles of some in some way, uh, standoff Tomahawk conventional strikes against the Russians that we would justify as necessary to prevent a Ukrainian collapse. Now. Right that's not an escalation to the nuclear level but what do the russians then do yeah now, an action and reaction dynamic mm-hmm. that will become much harder to control in part because the stakes are so high um, in a situation like that you're now in a situation where neither side can afford to back down neither side can afford to lose um, would wise heads prevail and both sides say hey look we see where this is going We need to find a way to compromise now. You know, what what do you think? Well,
0: well, what do you think the Russians? I mean, the Russians surely in their own contingency plannings must imagine the possibility that Western uh, NATO forces will be involved in providing air cover to assist uh, Ukrainian uh, advances or simply to protect them from being obliterated. Uh, Do Russians then respond with greater intensity in Ukraine? Do they? You know look at a place like P- poland or or the baltics as a place to uh you know mess around in if 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 we're already directly involved then i guess that red line has
1: uh now
0: been erased
1: well that's right you know and we have an interesting political dynamic inside russia in, in that uh, putin's being criticized by so-called turbo patriots yes or the the nationalist right wing for being too soft for for not defending uh, Russian red lines aggressively enough, for being too willing to try to find some sort of compromise with the West. You know, he's perceived by this part of the political spectrum as a Germanist. Um, And uh, so he will be under political pressure in a situation like that to show that Russia's not going to be pushed around. Um, And I think, It will be difficult under those circumstances for Russia not to target air bases, for example, in Poland or Romania, where Western aircraft might be yeah
0: attack the uh, supply lines the routes the installations all of of that
1: russians are certainly capable of doing that one of the reasons why they have not is precisely because they don't want uh to get into a situation where nato is directly involved in the fighting in ukraine sure if, if nato crosses that line itself then one of the incentives for restraint is uh diminished Inside right. Rush. Well, this is st- a very dangerous situation. Right.
0: Right. Well, this sounds and I think we're, we're getting close to winding up, but this sounds very much like a return to the systemic danger that you identified uh, so well in your book. And that continues to be sort of an operating pr- principle for how we should think about this. And you close your book with a kind of uh, saying of uh, uh, the CIA analyst, John uh, McLaughlin, who, who headed the uh, the the branch and i guess the cia at one point but you call it subverting the dominant paradigm uh and that sounds like uh that remains our challenge uh it hasn't been subverted has it
1: oh no uh the dominant paradigm in washington is if anything even more dominant Uh, and that makes the challenge of uh of challenging that paradigm even more important
0: yeah, well, maybe Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions and how to topple paradigms could apply, but it usually doesn't in international relations. Uh, well, I want to leave with one sort of a quiz question, which remains out there, which is Evgeny Prigozhin. Uh, what does your analyst's hat tell you is going on there and what should we be thinking about with his apparent Uh, murder at someone's hands. Many people think the Kremlin. In connection with this question about uh, the general uh, who was believed tied to Pogosian and and Wagner, General Sergei Serovkin, who used to be the head of the Russian aerospace forces and apparently has been dismissed, are thoughts about Pogosian and are we seeing what might even be called a purge uh, by the Kremlin Possibly in an effort to reassert the vertical of power.
1: Yes, well, you know, Putin's style of rule since uh, his ascent to the presidency back in the, the early two thousands has been to try to uh, balance various factions within the government and and uh, Russia's elite more broadly, which extends outside of government into you know business and media. Um, and you know, he attempted to establish some red lines for all these different factions, essentially saying, you know, you need to serve the state. You need not to challenge state authority. Uh, So long as you're willing to live with that, then you can keep your your businesses and your your media positions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, If you're not, then we're gonna have a problem. And most of the Russian elite got the message and towed the line. A few did not. Um, and they are now either dead or in prison. Um, and I think what happened with Prigozhin was that Putin attempted to exploit um, the, uh, the military capabilities of this Wagner uh, mercenary group so that he would not have to lean as heavily on the regular russian military right. and on conscription and mitigate some of the political risks of this war yeah
0: he putin that, mm-hmm.
1: that's right and uh, but what he did not count on was that prigozhin might amass independent political influence in russia and ultimately try to use that to challenge the state's authority in some way about how to conduct this war um, and he allowed the situation to get out of hand, um, obviously. Um, and I think that uh, that has prompted him to to take some corrective measures now, uh, retrospectively. Um, he has attempted to uh, reassert the state's authority, to reestablish a balance among these different factions. I think early in this war, his focus was on... What you might call the, the more liberal uh, parts of the Russian political spectrum, uh, people that were unhappy with uh, cutting ties with the West, um, um, launching this war at all, um, you know, sort of the the left peacenik types uh, in Russia. Um, his early um, moves after the invasion were directed at that part of the spectrum. Um, What has become clear more recently is that the bigger threat lies to his political right among these turbo patriots. Uh, and prigozhin was emerging as is one of their public spokespersons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not only has he moved to tame Wagner to defang it uh, in, in several different ways, he's also cracked down more generally on the political right wing in Russia. Sir Vekin is an example of that. Um, He also arrested uh, Igor Gherkin, who who was also very popular in this part of the Russian spectrum, and there is a more general crackdown of criticism from the far right that's meant to send a message, to send a message uh, within Russia saying, hey, look, there are, are limits to what we're going to tolerate in all of this. Right.
0: Well, and the saga continues, and I think that's about as clear a, an analysis of the picture that we can get from a distance, at least, of what is happening in Moscow. Uh, George, George B, I want to thank you very much uh, for appearing today, uh, talking to me on America and Beyond. And the book, again, is The Russia Trap, how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe. Uh, I'm Paul Sarban. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Paul.